Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We're Matt and Bob. We're here to pod. You're listening to the Analysis. Ex- incredibly exciting episode today. We got a uh, friend of the pod, Bo- um, Mike Hammond, joining us, who brought to our attention a really great book, The Big Picture, uh, Fight for the Future of Movies. And we actually have the author of that book, Ben Fritz. Ben, thank you for joining us. Uh, ben, real quick, Ben is an editor for the Wall Street Journal. He previously covered Hollywood for the Journal, the Los Angeles Times, and Variety. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Bob, when you take away, uh, thank you for putting this all together, and thanks for uh, for Hammond for coming on as well. Yeah, so Ben, I'll tell you a little story to get us kicked off. So Mike Hammond comes to us, and and Mike's the guy who comes on our pod a lot. He, he's a, he's a guest, and he really loves the business side of Hollywood and why certain decisions are made economically that impact what's happening artistically. And, and, and he brings that perspective to our podcast and he, he pushes a book to me and it's your book that was written about three, uh, almost three years ago in March of 2018, it was published and he's like, you got to read this book. And I read uh, the synopsis of it and really bought it right away. <laughs> and I was talking to my girlfriend and I, I was saying, I really love this new book that I'm reading. And she said, well, what's it about? And I said, well, it's kind of about the ascension of television over film, whether it's culturally or just financially or economically. And it, it, it's about the erosion a little bit of these mid-budget dramas and comedies that I used to love and, and kind of why we are only seeing these Disney live action remakes or superhero movies or branded franchises and she goes wow that is a uh book tailored to all of your interests so (laughs) i think uh i think my first question to you would be how long have you been tracking my behavior on social media (laughs) write a book to steal my 17 dollars and 39 cents on amazon yeah this sounds like sounds like this is a committee of people who were like uh who were like designed to be my my core buying audience so yeah, I found, we, you, I found you all your right audience. You're so, my core. You're my you're my core demographic right here, huh? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I finally found it. This is it. I finally found it. That's great. Did I set uh, the Did I set the synopsis up of the book? You is did. That, you okay. did. Especially. Yeah, you did. I mean, I think there, there's a few different takeaways, and the rise of TV's one, and you know, there's numerous reasons, right? But at its heart, the book is about what happened to all these mid-budget dramas and thrillers and comedies that we used to all see at the box office and that used to often top the box office. And yeah. how, did, how did the movie business come to be completely dominated by Marvel and Fast and Furious and the Transformers and, and so on? Um, you know, that is the heart of the book. And as you said, I come at it from a business angle. I'm a business reporter, so that's my bias. But, also, but the reason I took that job is because, you know, I believe that if you want to understand why you get the pop culture you get, you have to understand the business behind it. Um, and to me, it's always been super interesting. You know, I was a weird kid who like read Variety in the library when I was in high school. Um, <laughs> but I've always found it fascinating. So the fact that I, you know, got to spend a big chunk of my career like digging in and really getting to understand the business has been, you know, a thrill. I think what's so great is that like most people don't. Uh, it's like a, a this clouded veil of uh, the movie industry, right? And it's it's. No one really knows the inner workings. They just, these movies get put out and you try to track the changes and try to pick up on clues. I'm like, oh, there's a lot of Marvel coming out. And oh, Disney's really dominating with Star Wars. And why don't I see uh, Oscar winning movies so much anymore? Like why are, why are blockbusters no longer uh, that great? You know, you know like uh, The Social Network, uh, one of the best movies for me of the last 10 years. And apparently it was part of a failed philosophy of movie making but but to for to get this uh the the sony hack and then to be able to go behind the curtains uh and then for you to kind of report on that i just found so interesting um but i'm also a big nerd great yeah you know the thing about the movie business is interesting right is that it, it's kind of the worst thing where people have just a little bit of knowledge about it, which is always dangerous, right? It's like mm-hmm. everybody eats food, but nobody knows anything about that or cares about agriculture companies, right? You just like what you like. But most people who like movies, you know, people have like, they kind of heard of Kevin Faggy. They know that like Disney bought Fox. Um, you know, maybe, you know, they know that China is like having some influence on the movies that get made, but they don't fully kind of understand the economics of the business and why it works the way they do. And so they have a lot of, um, 
if you're, you know, uh, excuse me, an old judgmental, I think a lot of half-assed opinions. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of opinion, opinion and punditry out there about why Hollywood, what Hollywood's doing wrong and how could they ever make this kind of movie. And everybody has a criticism of, you know, that's always easy to make, especially in hindsight after the movie's done. Um, and I do my best to really, you know, start with the presumption that these are people who, uh, you know, are intelligent people trying their best to both run the business and in most cases make movies that they can be proud of. You know, um, and uh, and then dig in and try to really understand what they're doing. And then, yeah, you're exactly right, Matt. That's There's a lot of stuff I've known from covering Hollywood, but it's hard to show to the world because I don't have all the on-the-record evidence. And the Sony hack was, it turned out, the on-the-record evidence of really- Yeah, the I'm curious studio. real quick. I know, I um, would there have been a book without, without, those, uh, without the hack information? No, it wouldn't have been. I mean, because otherwise it would have been, I couldn't make the same points, but it would have kind of been, it would have been me pontificating, would be yeah. the book. I'd have to it be, would have been I'd have to be yeah. it would have, yeah, it would have been exactly, it would have been opinion journalism, it would have been an essay, right? But what I, I really prefer both to read and to produce journalism where I do not put myself front and center, where I, I let the reporting tell the story. And with the Sony hack, I could, I could have characters and a, a narrative and tell, tell a story and that story makes the point rather than me having to make the point. And I really love that, that you build in this arc and you, you, you have characters, you have Pascal and you, you talk about the, the pre-life before the book and, and her ascension to her role at Sony. And then obviously the conflict at Sony, the, the failing of the, the industry and how that impacted her. And then towards the end of the book and it, it's not really a spoiler because it happens. It happens in life, but she's she's on a pr production set of the post, and now she's just a, a. I mean to say, just a movie producer, but she's producing movies, and and I like that you do that where the book just doesn't start with the Sony hack, but you you also splice in and, and make basically a timeline starting from the studio system in the fifties, all the way up to what we're seeing with the Netflix takeover of the mid-budget drama and Amazon's takeover of mid-budget drama. But can you talk a little bit about, in your own words, just the tentpole that used to happen with the tentpole system and and where that's kind of come today? Sure. So, you know, from like Jaws, I'd say through um, Marvel, right? You had, so from like, you know, the 80s, essentially, when people started learning the lesson of Jaws through the end of the 2000s. The idea was, yeah, you got to have these big event movies. Um, and it's Jaws, or it's, you know, it's a Top Gun, or it's the Tim Burton Batman, or whatever. But that's just, but it's called a tent pole, because that's sort of right, the pole that holds up the tent. But then underneath the tent, you have all sorts of different movies. And the idea was, you got to make as many different kinds of movies as possible. Um, and more is better, essentially, right? Like quantity will make you the most profits. And that was the way the business worked when, um, uh, you know, TV was what it used to be, you know, four networks and crap on cable. Mm -hmm. And VHS and DVD sales and rentals generated a lot of income for the studios. So the more, mo most movies could make money that way. And so it made sense to make a lot of them. So you had these tent poles that were the big events that were the biggest profits and then, but you could only realistically make a few of them a year. And then all everything else underneath the tent was all those other kinds of movies you love, your Rain Man, your social network, your- Marriage Eddie Story. Crashers, yeah, you name it, right? Every kind of movie from, from, you know, from the small indie Miramax dramas to the big, you know, big budget uh, Adam Sandler comedies. Uh, it was just every kind of movie you could imagine basically was getting made and being released every year. And that was a smart way to run a studio. And that lasted all the way until uh, until the 2010s when we entered, you know, what I call kind of the, the franchise era. Yeah, and there yeah. was three made major culprits on why that started to change. And, and it became the death of this modern star system where it was star vehicles. So you were going to see an Adam Sandler movie or you were going to see a Will Smith movie. And now it's, it's totally shifted towards franchises. So you're going to see a character or a, a cinematic universe instead of a movie designed just around star power. And it really mm -hmm. came down to audiences trust within a product. You know, the main major culprits with that would be the internet or Netflix, uh, DVD declines. So mm -hmm. just the DVD sales 
and how they used to lean on the DVD sales and also just China and the impact of the China box office. Yeah, I think that's basically right. It's, it's, it's globalization, it's the fall off of DVD sales, and then it's the rise of internet streaming media, right? So obviously the biggest thing, the thing, that, the thing that I think people really don't appreciate, that's the biggest thing to know there is the effect that DVD sales had. DVDs made so much money in the studios. It's crazy, it's so crazy. Right, so right. The, I mean, with the peep, the guys who used to run the home entertainment divisions, and they were pretty much all guys of the studios, they were sort of the they were the they were the people who made all the money. You know, they were really the power behind the throne, and they they would love to brag to me about it. Right, so um, you know, they were showing me these charts where it's like on a you know, the, 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 they sell the DVD to you know their wholesale price is sold to Walmart or Target or whatever Best Buy was like fifteen bucks, and it cost them. Like the total cost of manufacturing and shipping plus whatever royalties they might have to pay to the talent was like two dollars maybe three i mean the rest of that is all profit um and people you know you remember probably your own behavior in the 2000s people were buying dvds because you know you're already shopping at the store you're on your way out they're selling it you know right there right in front of your face it's the thing that gets you in they often would discount the price sometimes they'd even sell it below cost right they sell it for 12 13 bucks to get you in and you could do, you know, you buy that and take it home. Well, you could rent it from Blockbuster for four or five dollars, but then you'd have to go back and return it. And if you're going to watch it twice, it's basically worth the cost to just buy it. Yeah. So people just bought DVDs, and people wouldn't remember, even unwrap them half the time. Right. That's why I love that. I love that stat, which is not in the hack. Yeah. Just something people told me. That approximately 15% of DVDs were never unwrapped. People just bought yeah. them and never even bothered to watch them. Right. So those are huge, huge profits, mm -hmm. but. People would have, you know, everybody would prefer a simpler way to do it. And then as soon as Redbox came about and Netflix, first even Netflix by mail, let alone the streaming, it was like, oh, I can get the DVD without leaving my house or at the grocery store I'm in anyway, only pay for the time I need it, and then return it very easily. It's not like having to drive just specifically the Blockbuster. And that started just all of a sudden the profits were falling. And all these movies that don't do great at the box office were not making money anymore. Mm -hmm. that, that, that to me is just the biggest thing and basically people say in the mid to by until the mid 2000s from like the 90s to the mid 2000s it was almost impossible to lose money on a movie and starting in the late 2000s and the dvd sales plummeted it started to become really hard to make money on a movie and that's that's what really starts to frustrate me is that there's this cultural shift and mm -hmm. i'm and call me sentimental but I, the, the part of your book that really kicked me in the nuts was that this used to be a cultural experience and there used to be some sort of ownership that these studios would have in terms of bringing the cultural experience of either laughing with a group of people in the theater or um, I obviously being emotional or crying with people in the theater. And a lot of the decision makings, because, you know, when a, when a, a drama, you talk about the difference between a drama being hitting singles and doubles versus a, a Marvel hit hitting a home run. And they don't, they don't net as much profit. Even, even successful dramas like La La Land, you get one little trip to the box office versus toys versus all mm -hmm. this other stuff. And there's been this erosion of culture. And it really upsets me on that side. It's just what's happening artistically to the industry. Sure. I mean, the thing is the companies that are winning are the ones that are treating entertainment, you know, in this case, we're talking about movies, as widgets, right? As the same, the same way like an MBA would treat selling, you know, frozen broccoli or uh, goggles or I don't know, whatever the heck you name it, right? It's just, it's nothing. It's a product and you sell to people the most efficient way you possibly can and give it to them however they want to take it, right? But um, movies are more than that, obviously. And it means more than that to us, but, uh, but it's becoming just this discrete little thing i don't know what else to call it it's just becoming something that's not special right yeah, when it's still when it's still when it's just streamed over the internet in a list of a ton of other things that you could stream well i think you mentioned that like it's actually being run like a business now with like the yeah. the outsider money and the you know china coming in and, and eisner and and bob Iger. like these guys are like um this this was like a really uh, romanticized uh, cultural phenomenon it just wasn't being run like a business uh yeah so yeah it's kind of amazing, right? It's that the people you would complain about corporatization in the 80s and 90s, but honestly, like they were still running, the movie studios were allowed to run in this special way that no other business is allowed to run, you know? And really, you know, there's a, the chapter on Disney, which I, I you know, I wrote it, but I, I think it's this, this uh, the interview I did with Bob Iger for that chapter was so 
<laughs> to me, I would say, because yeah. uh, he was, he, it's a simple thing, but you know, he just came in and was like, I'm going to run this like a business. He's like, I love, you know, these Miramax movies you're making are great. I, Bob Iger personally like them, but I am, I would like to make as big a profit as possible. And since he didn't come from the movie business, he didn't care about keeping all the agents and producers happy. And so he just looked down and said, which movies make the biggest return on investment? Not Miramax, not Touchstone, just the ones that have the Disney brand. So let's stop making the Miramax and Touchstone films, period. That, that's heresy, it seemed like, um, but it was the financially smartest thing to do. And that's why Disney, you know, is, and then on top of that, then he's like, to keep, follow that strategy further. And that's what took, got him to buy Pixar, buy Marvel, buy Lucasfilm. Yeah. And now Disney is the most financially successful movie business in modern history. Oh, man. And, you know, I think you could easily argue they're probably the most creative, you know, hopefully they're Creatively listening. Boring. But honestly, the, the most creatively bankrupt, uh, I would say, movie company in modern history as well. And that's why Sony is such a great case study is because they're late to the party of this copycat industry and they really <laughs> rode the star vehicle into the ground and they just invested so heavily, especially in hilariously Adam Sandler. I know. <laughs> I, I, I love the line where you can't reboot an aging hack, uh, movie star. Mm -hmm. although, right. although, although they did try to do it with Gemini Man, but. <laughs> right, I always said by one of them. Yeah, they know. They, that's, when, that, that's when they knew they were screwed. That's a great line. <laughs> well, Sony doesn't have any franchises, but you have Pascal and she's this, she's, she's the romantic or she, she's like me. It, that's why idiots like me aren't allowed to run movie studios. There's a lot of reasons. You, you, you talk about half-ass opinions. I, I've got a billion, but it's, you know, and it's, it, it's just, you you were were missing out but then those stars and you can even think will smith or adam sandler a lot of these people where the mid-budget drama and comedy isn't being made from the movie theater anymore they find a home on netflix and amazon and mm -hmm. i think it's really creative when you talk about in your chapter on netflix took the approach of just data and analytics Mm -hmm. And they, they looked at it instead of gut feelings, they just used the data that was coming to them all the time to build uh, content around that. Can you elaborate on that for me? Sure. So, right, there's a lot there. I mean, Will, you know, the Sony executives always like to say, Will and Adam bought our houses, right? Because Will and Smith and Adam Sandler made so much money for Sony in the 2000s. Sometimes you think about you, like, I can't believe this people were paying millions of dollars and the business was let Will Smith and Adam Sandler do whatever they want. Like, that doesn't sound very hard, right? Um, <laughs> until, and then, oh shit, this isn't working anymore, right? And, you know, we all know the reasons. People may have got tired of them, but also almost all movie stars were dying once franchises like Marvel started taking over. And it turns out that, the, you know, people would rather be uh, follow a brand than follow a star. And the types of movies those guys were making, especially Sandler, really better suited to watch at home. People would rather watch them at home. They just didn't have the option. Yeah, and Netflix knew that. And Netflix had, Netflix is, Netflix is, you know, the data doesn't tell them make the script, but the data says make more of this and less of that. What are people looking for that we don't have enough of, right? And they, due to a deal they had indirectly with Sony, had a bunch of old Adam Sandler movies and they could see people searching for them, watching them, and then running out of options. And they could see people overseas in countries where Netflix exists, but the Sandler movies weren't even being released in theaters, like Estonia or something. People were watching the Sandler movies and they, they online and they wanted more. And so for Netflix, it made sense to produce these Adam Sandler movies. And they didn't have to worry about the tens of millions of dollars it cost to release and market the film in theaters. So it's more financially efficient for them than it would be for Sony. And it was perfect for their audience. People would rather watch it at home than go out uh, to the theaters. And because Netflix didn't, you know, doesn't have huge franchises um, that doesn't don't work as well to watch at home, they, the, the movie star business still makes sense to them. People will sort of, if people are more willing to try different things at home when you're paying a flat fee of 10 or 15 bucks a month than they are to go out to the theater and pay, you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks to go out for the night. So the Sandler kind of the, the star vehicles still work well on streaming in a way that they know they no longer can compete with the big budget franchises in, in the box office. Yeah, I think I think that's what's interesting, right? Like people are still watching these movies and seeking them out, but they they'll bomb at a box office, but will do well at home. And, and for a while, it's been like, eh, I'll wait for it to come out on DVD or I'll wait to watch it at home. Like that has been a trend where people are like, there is a quantifiable um, cost to enjoyment ratio of going to the theater and 
seeing a Bond or a Mission Impossible or a Marvel film, it's like, yes, I want that. I want to see that in IMAX. I don't really need to see this rom-com in IMAX. I'm going to wait. So that's always been a thing. And you mentioned earlier with Netflix and Redbox where the technology really hadn't caught up to, to people yes. wanting to see those movies, just not to go out to see them. Yes, that's totally true. I mean, lots of people would prefer to wait for DVD, but of course, it's like if you really want to see the movie, you had to go to the theater. And that yeah. was the studio's business model was, was the studio business model was very carefully theater and then DVD, um, buy, you know, and then DVD per and then DVD purchase and then rental if they could differentiate them, which they were able to. And then eventually it goes to TV and, you know, and, and um, first premium cable like HBO, right? And then basic cable and then free TV. And they make more money every step of the way is their idea. Netflix is right, it just comes out at once and it's done. So they can't, they can only get the money once. So the studios hate that. Um, but uh, Netflix, you know, since they own the subscription business entirely, it actually makes a lot of financial sense for them in a way it never would for like a Universal or a Sony. What's funny is that the Adam Sandler movies are still really bad. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah. Why is that funny? That's that seems obvious. <laughs> well, no, but it just works now. Like, like Amy Pascal wasn't wrong. I think she was wrong in trusting him for too long, mm -hmm. and, and like allowing him to make these flops that are just were increasingly horrendous. But then he goes to Netflix, get this giant deal. They're still really bad movies, but now they're they're useful to a different platform. There, there is a core audience that will that likes his movies no matter what they are. You know, they're not people who like sort of wish he was back to when he was funny in the '90s, which is the category I put myself in. Yeah. Also, like people's standards are a lot lower for what they will watch at home than what they want to than what they're going to pay money to go see in a theater. That's really the the core of that, and I think there's it's a double edged sword because actually mid budget dramas and comedies are being produced almost more now because it's safer to produce them for those platforms so you're getting more marriage stories and you're going to get more irishmen's but then you're losing the experience in the theater and so i'm kind of like i'm i'm the d guy when you talk about people that are into the the, the capital the d word the dramas like the, mm -hmm. the domestic dramas and i'm thinking about when you said the top movie in 88 was rain man and how Rain Man probably wouldn't be produced under the old studio system in 2010, but it might have lived on Netflix. Mm -hmm. So exactly. I'm just kind of wrestling with that and trying to get my feelings around it. Yeah, that's what I wrestle with in the conclusion of the book, you know, mm -hmm. is, yeah. and I, as you read, you know, I, I ultimately am like, well, you know, I sort of see both sides of the argument and I'm presenting them both and it's up to you. I, I don't. I don't, you know, I, I, it's hard, tough for me to take a side because I think there's good either way. Um, the basic point being for listeners, right, is on the one hand, like the diversity of stuff being released in theaters has lessened dramatically. There's a lot fewer interesting movies to see in theaters and there's a lot more. It's just, it's just there's fewer films and what's left is mainly big budget franchise films. Marvel, Fast and Furious and their, their imitators. On the other hand, if you encompass the universe of visual content, I would call it, right, call it television series, movies, limited series, made for TV movies that are just made for streaming movies that are just as good as stuff that used to be made in theaters, just content, storytelling. There is more than ever. More, of it, more stuff is getting produced of all kinds. You name the category and it's getting made for Netflix or HBO Max or Apple or Amazon or Peacock, um, <laughs> and on and on and on, right? They're producing tons of stuff and creative people are getting it. And, and it also, within more categories, right? It used to be either you make a studio movie or you make a, you know, a procedural drama or a sitcom for the networks. And those were the categories. But now you can, you can make more limited series. You can make a TV show can just have eight episodes in a season, you know, and just tell one story and essentially be a long movie. There's so many, so much different kinds of content you make, but now we're watching so much of it just at home and we're not having this shared cultural experience where you're in an auditorium with a hundred people and also, you know, around the country and the world, maybe even billions of people are watching the same thing at around the same time that you are. Now, you know, I see a movie, um, you know, on Netflix this week, and maybe it's, it's on your queue and you don't get around to it for three months. And maybe you, you know, the algorithm didn't suggest it, you didn't read about it, you've never even heard of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very different cultural experience. And there's definitely something lost. I think you for can't, sure. you can't. I think that, yeah, that's uh, what we're losing is like that shared experience. Can, yeah. you, can you expand? I love the part of your book when you talk about the because the elevation of TV right now mm -hmm. is to a place where there it's really TV series are basically 40 hour movies and 
Iron Man 3 is basically a two-hour episode of a television show in a cinematic yeah. universe. Can you expand on that a little? Yeah, I thought it was fascinating to uh, kind of see, see that happening. Yeah, you, so you watch these prestige dramas on premium cable or streaming, and a season is essentially one long story right? Um, the, episode, the episodes, they cut it up just so you don't have to sit there for eight hours, but the story just continues all the way through um, the way that a movie would. Um, and often, often these uh, TV show seasons were originally conceived as films. I mean, just I'll take one example because what, what, one of my best friends out here was a writer. Um, his name is Justin Marks and he created the show Counterpart. I don't know if you saw it, but just one example, he, he pitched it, it was a film. It was 100% going to be a film, and the company was like, we'll never be able to get this finance as a film, but we can totally sell it as a TV show. So yeah. he just, you know, made it, essentially made it longer and took what was going to be a two-hour film and made it a 10-hour season of TV. And that happens all the time. Um, and But yeah, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think it's best understood, I can't realize, is episodes of a TV show. And you think about Foggy and his collaborators, you know, they sort of plot out each, uh, what do they call it? Um, uh, you know, there's oh, like the phases. Phases, yeah. He put the phases, and those are almost like seasons. But one time, I saw he did this event at, at this theater in here where he pitched the next eight Mar Marvel movies, and I was like, oh, this is like when the network, you know, lays out its new slate of shows. Yeah. Um, and they all, you know, because the plot line continues, but they each are their own discrete story that ends. It's definitely like a season of a TV show. And then sometimes, you know, I was this idea you can have a the you know the episode that plants the seeds for a spinoff like happens in TV you know and so mm -hmm. so Black Panther shows up first in one of the Avengers movies and then he gets a spinoff of his own his own right and clearly like each Avengers movie is like a season finale yeah um and uh it's yeah it, that, that it's, was so risky it, it felt so risky it seemed if it, it seemed um so it was so counter to everything that's been going on in the movie business when they still do it. It's one of those things where like, it seems crazy. And then once you do it, it works. And you look back in hindsight and you're like, how did nobody ever think of this before? And then right. it, if it was so easy to do, because then you're hitting yourself in the head and it's like, okay, all we needed was a branded franchise or a huh. universe, but people screw it up all the time. Yes. Warner Brothers yes. can't get it right with DC. Right. right. You know? Absolutely. Right. Yes. Warner can't get it right with DC. Remember the, the Universal horror movies were going to be a, a franchise after after yeah, um, the, after the, the mummy, mummy and the wolf. Yeah, oh my god. Yeah, it was going to be that was going to be a cinematic universe. Ghostbusters was going to be a cinematic universe. Which one? Um, the, the one with with uh, Melissa McCarthy. Oh, that they, one. Well, aren't they yeah. making another one? They're trying to reboot that already. Yes, yes. Now they're rebooting and pretending that one didn't happen. It's like like, yeah. like Terminator. We'll do it over and over and over, and we're going to get it right eventually. Doing a cinematic universe well, it turns out, is very hard. Marvel, you know, the people running Marvel are very smart. And they, and, but, and also they were first, you know, and people yeah. don't have room in their lives to be fans of five different cinematic universes in most cases. That's a really good point. When you're coming across and you obviously had a, a, so much research and my highlighter is in the trash now because I kept highlighting different phrases from your <laughs> book, but was there anything that you came across that was most surprising? Yeah, well, I'll, yeah, I mean, I'd say one or two things, those small discrete things that were pretty amazing, and then also maybe in the macro level, right? So certainly, uh, you know, the most amazing detail to me, uh, which I, I got to lead on it in the hack, and then I actually I got the actual detail of it when I interviewed someone, is that Sony had the opportunity to buy Marvel, right? To buy the rights to every single Marvel movie so, for, yeah. for $25 million. And they oh turned my it God. And they turned it down. That's crazy. Who wants to movies about Iron Man? Exactly. They, all, they, they wanted Spider-Man. And the, the lawyer who went off and got this offer came back to them and he said, oh, the, you know, Marvel just had a bankruptcy. They really need cash. They're offering us the rights to all their characters. And it was, you know, it's like Jack and the Beanstalk comes back with a magic bean. They're like, this isn't what I wanted. What are you doing? Uh, yeah, we just want wow. Spider-Man. Who's ever going to see a movie about Iron Man or the Guardians of the Galaxy or Black Panther or Ant-Man? These are trash. These are garbage. This is worthless. Easy to see in hindsight, of course, but still, this has got to go down as one of the greatest business mistakes in not just Hollywood, I'd say, in American history, without a doubt. And, and, and then that didn't include X-Men, right? Like, that, that wasn't on the table back then? The only ones that were not were the ones that are, were at Fox. So, yes, yeah. the X-Men and the Fantastic Four are the only ones This that absolute were not refusal to acknowledge buying behavior changing. And it, the same with Blockbuster had a chance to buy Netflix, and they wouldn't do it because mm -hmm. people were always yeah. going to go to Blockbuster stores. And it's just yeah. – and then, and then the, the decision to lead off 
the universe with Iron Man came down to kids liking the Iron Man toy more than the Thor toy, which yeah, I thought that was crazy too. Yeah, that was great. The, I'm, some of these things like that is another one I got in an interview. And I, when I remember sitting there and hearing it and like my mind exploding and like trying to remain calm in front of the person who told me because I want them to keep talking, you know? <laughs> yeah, that for your listeners who haven't read it, yeah, what like is that Marvel had the rights to all these different characters in the center of the universe and they weren't sure which one to do first and they they did focus groups with kids, not to ask them what movies they wanted to see, but what toys. Because Marvel, the thing is, Marvel right, Marvel made their movies really well, and they're very creatively smart. But P- Marvel did not know that they were going to create this massively successful cinematic universe. The reason they started making the movies was to sell toys. They thought that if they controlled when the movies came out and how they were made, didn't license them to studios, then they would be able to sell a lot more toys along with the movies. That was Ike Perlmutter, the head of Marvel. That was his goal. His goal was to sell toys. Um, the Perlmutter yeah. character is fascinating to me because he kind of he comes he's like a vacuum salesman or uh, he's just like this this no, grifter. So. I had no idea that was the guy running no, Marvel. No, a biker guy. Yeah, he's a cheap. He's just a cheap. He's the <laughs> he's the right. He's a guy who was in like the ninety nine cent store business. Yes. The, yeah. Yeah. He just likes to buy things at a bankruptcy and sell them for a little bit more money. He's the cheapest cheapest person I've ever heard about in my life. And he's uh, still running it, right? He still, it's kind of, yes, he still works in Disney. It's a, he doesn't have that much power anymore. So Kevin Feige came to hate him, working for him, mm-hmm. and doesn't report to him anymore. So he's still a big shareholder at Disney, still has some power, but he doesn't oversee the movie business anymore. He does oversee the toy business, the, the Marvel toy business, and the comic books, technically. But he, no, he doesn't have much power anymore, but he did for a long time. And he, he came from the toy business, actually. He had bought a toy company out of bankruptcy. That's how he ended up owning Marvel by chance right. because Marvel had a partnership with this toy company. He doesn't give a shit about comics. He just got in there because Marvel had been bankrupt and he thought there was some value to be had there basically. And, uh, and, and then... Sometimes it's better be lucky than good. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the book was in 2018. We've mm-hmm. been slapped with the pandemic. Theaters have... Everything's basically now swinging into streaming. Mm-hmm. What are, what are your I it's I know you don't have a magic crystal ball there but wh- where are we going from here Ben? I think my my read is that we're going everywhere we, we were going now on hyperspeed things that yeah. I thought were going to take three or four years are happening in a year right is that pe- is so cinemas are entirely closed they will reopen and I'm I believe people will still be eager to go back and see Black Widow and Wonder Woman and the new Bond film. You know, people want to see those films. Matt Hayes has his ticket for Bond. That's great. Nice. People will prefer to see them in the theater. And also the studios will never sell those to streaming because the economics don't work for those $200 million plus films. Have you heard of the recent news about that, though, with No Time to Die getting uh, Apple Plus offered them, I think, around the bidding started at half a billion. I think maybe they offered $300 million and they were laughed out of the room. Yes. So, right. But it didn't happen. And there's two things I know Mm. about that, right? One is... It still didn't happen. They still couldn't make economics work, economics work. And the only reason I think that was considered is because Bond is owned by MGM, which is a very small company, unlike Warner Brothers as part of AT&T, right? Or, you know, Disney, which is a massive company, or Universal, that's part of Comcast. MGM is its own little company. Yeah. And they, des- they can barely survive without the money from Bond. So they're, they're in desperate straits. They really need cash, which is why they at least entertained the offers. But by and large, companies are not going to do that with their franchises. Um, one, they, can, they can't really make the money back in most cases. But even if, say, Apple offered enough money that it, would, you know, it was profitable for an MGM or so on, think about the damage it does to the franchise, right? Yeah. To the perception, the value, right? If Bond is something that's just listed on, on, on your queue in some streaming service, it's not this big special thing anymore. And that absolutely hurts the long-term value of future films, of toys, of theme park rides, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, because they're expecting another billion-dollar movie like Spectre (laughs) and Skyfall. Do you think that they'll be able to get that? I mean, will people go back to the movies in in those kind of numbers? I think so. I think people will. I don't see any reason why people will not go back um, to see those kind of films the same way they always wanted to because yeah. people are not getting that on streaming in the meantime. It's one of the few things that they're missing. And, you know, those are, the, those are still the events people love to go to see together. I think people are, are eager to see them. They can't wait to go back, in my, many pe- the fans, at least in my opinion. 
And the only problem is going to be that when theaters reopen, there's so many of them that have been waiting to come out. We're just going to get, they're going to be, um, every, every day. I mean, right. Every week there's a new massive franchise. And I mean, there's a new massive $200 million event movie and you can't have an event movie every week. People don't yeah. go to the movie. Most people don't go to the movies every week. And so definitely there are going to be some big losers in there, but overall the box office will bounce back for those types of films. People are going to be eager to see them again. And the, the, the best ones will still be successful. Um, I, I question, however, how, whether people are going to go back for every other kind of film. That's, yeah, I, think, well, I, think, Bob, I think, the, I think the damage done to the non-franchise films is pretty serious. Yeah. Like, I mean, me, Bob and I went to go see Tenet when it was briefly, uh, uh, we were able to do so when I was out visiting Chicago and it was a really weird experience, uh, somewhat depressing and very few people were there. People in a massive IMAX theater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I saw Tenet, the only way you can hear in LA is in a drive-in, and I severely regret it, honestly. Um, the experience was so poor. There were like, you know, there was like a traffic light behind the screen oh, and changing all the time. And you know how hard <laughs> it is- running the red light, green light to give you another- Yes, oh my God. And you, and you know how hard it is to understand the dialogue in a Nolan film yeah, anyway? Right. Imagine doing that with my, your fucking car sound system. I mean, it was, it was such a such a mistake. Oh, so I could just picture Nolan behind the screen with little flashlights, you know, yeah. in another dimension. Mike, Mike, was there anything that you wanted to jump in there with at all? We've kind of been passing yeah, you. Over. I know it's good. I mean, the only one thing I had following up in terms of interesting facts in the books that kind of blew me away, and it really starts the book off is the marketing is roughly the same in terms of an investment for a mid-budget movie to like a high-budget movie. Which, which makes the risk so much higher. I thought that kind of blew my mind. I don't want to go too down a rabbit hole with that, but can you explain the sort of math there and how that works? Sure. So, well, that's right. It's a really kind of, you know, soothing to catch up to, to latch onto. And when people, because there's always this argument, well, why make one $250 million movie? Why not make five $50 million movies, right? And you can make just as much money, right? And there's a few reasons. One of the big ones is what you just said, Mike, is that, the marketing to release a film nationwide or globally is is roughly the same no matter what it is. You you cannot cannot get the attention of and of moviegoers unless you spend minimum like twenty twenty five million dollars. And and in for U.S. marketing at least, there's really not much point to spending more than fifty million dollars. You don't there's not much more value past that past that. So the marketing budget for a film, you know, uh, domestically or globally is roughly the same no matter what it is because you need to make people aware of it and get them excited to come right so whether the movie costs you 10 million dollars to make or 200 million dollars to make you're still spending probably 25 to 50 million dollars in domestic marketing maybe if you're doing it worldwide you're spending 100 to 125 so when you think about that so therefore the cost of making and releasing a low-budget film all of a sudden isn't yeah actually that different right the difference is less you know um it's not just if the movie costs, you know, half as much to make, it doesn't not cost half as much to release. And then of course, there's the fact that you mentioned like with La La Land, there's all this recurring value in a franchise. If you create a franchise, a franchise or continue it as a hit, you're going to get several more films out of it. You're going to get spinoffs. You're going to get consumer products. And that's where the big money is, is knowing I'm not just going to have one successful movie. I'm going to have five successful movies, right? And no matter how massively successful uh, Crazy Rich Asians or La La Land or whatever it is, you're not going to get a cinematic universe out of it. Well, and then when yeah. those when those dramas fail, they disappear. Like nothing yes. is quieter when a drama releases and it doesn't hit. It just there is there is a big loss. So if you're if there's risk on both, but the the gain is so so little. Right. That's also true, right? Now, there is it doesn't matter how bad it is. Like you're you're a Transformers movie, right? And there have been some really bad ones. It's not going to open to $3 million. Like it's just not possible, right? There is a fan base for it, no matter what. There's built-in awareness. Um, you can release a drama now, like with big stars, right? And they can open to $2 million, $3 million and finish their gross at under $10 million and lose a massive amount of money. And it's like they never existed. That didn't used to be true before there was so much good stuff on TV and streaming. But now it is, which is why, you know, the I mean, they've done the analysis to prove it. Like, the, the risk of a $150 million movie is lower than the risk of a $20 million movie in most cases. Which was uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Is that where they figured it out? Which... That was something, yes, that was something that, that was, that insight first came apparently at, at Disney. I mean, there's a chapter in Disney. I don't know if they're the first ones to have it, but they definitely had it. Yes. They started to realize it was, 
it's, it's less risky to spend more money on films like Pirates of the Caribbean, those, the, yeah. remember those old Disney-branded uh, action films in the 2000s. Yeah. yeah, wow. I mean, it's amazing that uh, any of these mid-budget movies are even made. Because I mean, like On the Rocks just came out, Apple Plus. Yeah. And like, I, I love movies like that. Sophia um, Coppola and Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. It's a great little movie. And I, I, what I love is that you kind of end the book on a very hopeful, positive tone. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess mm-hmm. I kind of feel the same way where, because I was so depressed for like, you know, this this few years leading up to like where we are now because like this this was the inevitable right and like all the movies i like to watch are just disappearing but now they've they've found new homes and i guess as long as they're still being made i guess yeah uh, that that's all i need right it's much better that's much better than the alternative than they're not getting made which is what it's seemed like for a little while so you got to be yeah if you know if you want to be hopeful then you have to be happy with that they're getting made you can see them and you know you and your friends who are also cinema lovers will will get to see them and talk about them so yeah. uh that is that's the sunny side that uh you should try to try to look at that way that Our, that netflix had to the filmmakers and they said when you saw a film that was impactful to you or made you want to be a filmmaker where'd you watch it was it in the theater or a lot of the directors and actors said, no, it was on VHS in my home. And mm-hmm. so I said, you're, it's, you're still going to be able to bring value. You're still going to be able to impact the world and have your art scene. It's just going to be streaming. Yeah. And look, that, that's sort of true and it's sort of not, right? Ted Sarandos, who's the head of content for Netflix, he would make that argument to try to get filmmakers to work with him. And absolutely, right? When we were um, kids, you know, I remember we probably often saw films only on DVD or if we watched them a lot, you saw them, you know, 10, maybe once in the theater and then 10 times on DVD or cable. But when it, those movies that came out on DVD were first released in a theater. And the reason that they, you had heard of them and they were, they had become a big deal was that they were, came out in cinemas. There was a big marketing around them and there was not as much other stuff crowding. What didn't used to happen that can happen now is a movie can come out and you've never heard of it and it makes no impact. And as you guys know, and any filmmaker can tell you, you can release a movie on Netflix now and 95% of the country is not aware of it, right? And that is not, filmmakers don't like that. That's not why people create art. They want people, you know, they want as many people as possible to be aware of it. And when a film is released in a theater, a lot more people are aware of it. It is some kind of, and you know, that release date becomes some kind of an event. Do you think the Oscars were gonna be, become more important to, to getting out awareness do you think there gonna be less i mean like what the oscar buzz bump does that still exist do people still seek that out or well the oscars have two options right and i will um i don't think it's i mean the meeting was off the record but i don't know what the existence of it was i went i so after the one of the coolest things that happened in the book is i was asked to go speak at this committee that the academy had organized for like the future of the oscars and what you know what should we do because they know that the ratings are just going one direction and I came in and I just had this chart that I actually created for a WHA article that I showed them that was, it was just, it was um, the inflation adjusted gross of best picture winner every year since like the eighties. And with a few exceptions, right? It's just, it's just going down every year. The win- movies that win best picture are grossing less and less at the box office. And the reason is that the types of movies that people go to see in theaters are more and more not the types of movies that the Academy wants to give their awards to. I said, look, you have two choices. And this is my opinion about the Oscars, right? You can either say the, uh, the Academy Awards are to honor the theatrical movie going experience and we are, and make the rules even stricter that a movie has to play in a theater for like numerous weeks, you know, all over the country or something. It has to be something that for most people, it really is, was theatrically released film, not these theater movies that come out in, one auditorium in LA and one in New York for two weeks and then they mm-hmm. go right to streaming. Um, or say, no, the, a movie is a, is a discrete viewing experience. It's non-episodic, right? So 90 minutes to three hours, you sit down at one time and watch it and it doesn't matter where you see it. And it can be, yeah. it can be on streaming and never go in the theater. Both of those I think are, are valid, but you got to decide. And then you got to say either we're just celebrating all movies or we're celebrating the theatrical movie experience, one or the other. And then, if, and if it's going to be theatrical, you better do some work to make movie theaters relevant to young people. You know, whether, I don't know whether it's like outreach to colleges or working with AMC and Regal to, you know, make the Oscar nominated films free or available in packages or you got to do something to really encourage theatrical movie going and make that your mission. Because right now, I think they're kind of living in between. They can't decide. Yeah. And 
since they're not capturing all the films that are on streaming, they don't really feel relevant to most people, but yet they're also not recognizing, you know, the Marvel movies that people love to go see in theaters. And so they're just, the movies that actually get nominated, like don't really represent much of anything to people and they right. don't feel less and less relevant. I think it will probably be a ladder, right? Where it's just like anything between 90 and, th and three hours, but then there'll also be like the popular Oscar where it's like, uh, you know, uh, that's where the Marvel movies can compete and stuff like that. Right. They had that idea for having like a, uh, there was going to be a separate right award a couple of years ago for like the best popular film or something. It kind of got lapped out of the room, but there's a, there's certainly an argument for it. Um, but also it would be great. It would be great. You know, I, I, my personal opinion, if some of the Oscar voters could get over a little bit of their snobbery and be able to recognize that there are some, you know, big budget franchise films that are really, really good and deserve to be recognized alongside the, you know, Fox Searchlight type films. Yeah. And then, of course, you got the Spielbergs who refuse to acknowledge anything on Netflix, um, which and I, I see both sides. Yeah, you know, I see where they're coming from, but then you got to be, you got it, that's fine, but then you have to admit that you are excluding a lot of films that a lot of people are seeing, that you're not really, you're not encompassing the world of movies anymore if you do that. Well, the Academy Awards, the mid budget, a mm -hmm. lot of times, domestic drama but yet the industry doesn't make money off of it so <laughs> which one is it which one do you you either produce it or you tailor the award show right they sorry so the the movies they release are the reality of what the business is and then the oscars are what they wish the business was yeah that's right. such, i love the <laughs> way you phrase that that's uh, great man. that's why you make the big bucks and okay. <laughs> over here asking questions uh, the last question I have for you is is kind of a funny fact that I came across researching you, but you're you're uh -oh. Uh -oh. you're using the Sony hacks and the emails uh, as as opportunity to do your journalism. But you came across your own name in the emails. Yes. Can you tell mm -hmm. us that story. Sure. So how could you not? Once I had access to them, how could you not search for your name? Of course, right? <laughs> Anybody would, and. Uh, I found it did come up. There was a time I wrote, I wrote a story about Amy Pascal when uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out. And, um, it, you know, if you read the book, you know, she's very anxious and she doesn't like anything anybody says about her, basically. So, of course, she didn't like the article that I wrote for the Wall Street Journal. And she was complaining about it to Jeff Robinov, who used to run Warner Brothers and then had his own movie company that partnered with Sony. So they were buddies. And... So yeah, I searched for my name and it came up in this email from Jeff Robinov to Amy Pascal. You know, the highlighted part with my name was fuck Ben Fritz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you were the only one dogging on the movie. I, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Everybody else, everybody else thought that movie was, that movie was, was a, such a jam, such a success. Yeah. Uh, you said the, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest things to come from the book was being able to speak at that Oscar panel, but mm. you failed to mention being on the analysis, which. Uh, <laughs> yeah. well, until I'm not done until I'm only, only in hindsight, into, you know, before this exact moment. Man, yeah. I just, I, what I love about the book and, you know, we can wrap this up, but just like Sony just can't get out of its own way. I mean, like, mm. I don't know what kind of a, if you're much of a gamer at all, I, like yeah. Sony's Videos, like The Last of Us I'm obsessed with and Uncharted has just been fumbled for years and like I mean do you have any predictions on what they're going to do with that because they're desperate for franchises right I mean yes Tom Holland they're doing like an origin story um, yeah I, I can't say specifically like why those films haven't been made well or what, whether, when they're going to make it but Sony you know I only sort of touch on this in the book but because it's not this one but you know Sony based a company overall when it comes to entertainment is just as far as synergy goes, it's just a series of, of, of bad decisions and mishaps, yeah. right? Uh -huh. Going back to, you know, not buying Marvel, right? But really, the, I mean, think of Sony on PlayStation, the fact that they didn't launch their own video streaming service on PlayStation right. 10 or 15 years ago to compete with Netflix is crazy. They had the user base, they had the device, they have the content at Sony Studios. They didn't have their shit together to do it. And all the people at Sony Pictures would tell me that, you know, I don't know, you know, of course they don't blame themselves, they blame somebody else at the company, but they all say, yeah, we had this huge opportunity and we missed it. Um, and the company was just not run to work together well. And if, if you have a really smoothly well-run company, you would have seen a Sony streaming service on PlayStation that compete with Netflix. You would have seen all the, all the video games that have good stories in them, like The Last of Us, a great example, and Uncharted would have, be, would have been films five or 10 years ago. They would have been yeah. working together from the development from the earliest stages, they would have been talking and doing that stuff together. And Sony is just 
ultimately it's this very siloed company and the, part, the parts of it uh, don't work well together. And that's one of the key reasons why they've fared so poorly. And you know, ultimately, I would be shocked if in five years, Sony Pictures is still a studio. Yeah, me too. I honestly, after reading the book, I thought that they had been dissolved at some point, and I had missed it. But like, because uh, they're constantly eating their own hands, right? Like yes. the, the guy that's the, the the head of the television department, he's killing it, and then he's just laughed out of the room and like disrespected, mm -hmm. and then he leaves, and mm -hmm. I, it's, it's amazing. Yes. Uh, well, anyway. amazing is uh, one of the words I would use to describe your book, and anyone listening. I strongly recommend it. And I know we spoiled a lot of it on here, but there's, <laughs> there's a ton of, there's, a, there's more, there's way more, there's way more. Bring your highlighter. Uh, I, Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Really thrilling. And anytime you want to come and nerd out with us on some movie stuff, the seat is always open. The door is always open. Thank you. I would be very happy to come back sometime and talk more with my uh, core demo. Yeah, 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 that's uh, the, the Ben Fritz fan club right here. I think we're gonna have to change the whole nature of the podcast. <laughs> um, uh, real quick before we sign out, I th me and Bob both listened to the audio book. Uh, yeah. I know uh, Mike read the book. Did you have any input on terms of like the performance of the voiceover? <laughs> have you listened to it at all? Or I had no input. I have listened to it, but it took me like a solid three or four months because I would listen to it for a little while and kind of grimace, and then I would yeah. stop, and then I would How stop you... and put it back. Did you have any interest in doing it yourself at one point? No, I'm not. I'm not great at uh, performance like that. I really wish, in hindsight, I had suggested some actor friends of mine to do it. But I just sort of assumed that, like the publishing company, and that they would, I don't know, they do a really good job. And as you heard, right, the the key thing people can know is right. The the person they got to read it pronounced Warner Brothers as Warner Bros. Yes, all, all the throughout time. the book, which Gyllenhaal. just and, and so Jake mad. Gyllenhaal. I heard Gyllenhaal, a few right. Times. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Really maddening, really frustrating. Um, I, I'm glad. I really appreciate that you were able to enjoy the book despite that. Oh no, no, it was I, I, because I, I've tried, I've tried my hand at a few uh, audiobooks and it's just maddening. He's it's just auditioning for you, Ben. That's what he's doing. But uh, no, yeah, I, yeah. Well, if I ever, if I write another book, I can promise you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get way more involved in, in who, in who the reader is for the audiobook. Yeah, I, 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 so, I guess thank I'll you. Put on the list. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give you my card. Um, okay. All right, cool, man. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming on. This is a blast. Thank you for having me. It's really fun chat. Yeah, great. great. Don't forget thanks, to like and subscribe, everybody. We'll see you guys next time. Ben Fritz, Big Picture, The Fight for the Future of Movies. Give it a read. Bye. Bye.